invite you to open with me as you're able to Lamentations chapter 5, which can be found starting on page 690 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. Now, for our study this morning, um, we get to come to the final of five laments in the book of Lamentations. And uh, like the other laments and lamentations, this one too orbits around all of the events that happened around 586 B.C., when Jerusalem and the temple were razed, they were destroyed by the Babylonians, and Israel began their self-imposed 70-year exile. Now, we've grown accustomed, um, if you've been with us through Lamentations, or even if you just read the book on your own at any point, to a whole lot of repetition in the book. Uh, much of the same imagery is used in Lamentations. It goes over the same events again and again and again, though from slightly different perspectives along the way. But we'll see that as Jeremiah closes the book, that there's a certain resolution to all of it, a certain resolution to this final lament, while at the same time, it doesn't quite have the Hollywood ending, to quote one commentator, that we might wish it had. And we'll talk about how to make sense of that tension that Lamentations leaves us with in the final verse. So with some of these thoughts in mind, hear now the word of the Lord, Lamentations 5, 1 through 22. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is the word of the Lord. Um, in the spring of 2003, uh, there was a, well, a, a story that's now pretty well-known um, unfolded over the course of five days in the backcountry of Utah when a mountaineer by the name of Aaron Ralston was forced to amputate his arm with a cheap multi-tool in order to save his life. Some of you may know this story. It's a pretty famous one. As the story goes, Ralston one afternoon ventured out into Utah's Blue John Canyon for one day for what should have been only a relatively short, I guess, eight-hour hike, 
Um, He didn't tell anyone where he was going or what he was doing, which may have been his first mistake, especially because he went out to what was an extremely remote area. And at one point on this eight-hour trek, uh, apparently an 800-pound boulder dislodged itself and pinned his right arm so firmly that he couldn't move. He was stuck with little supplies. I think I read he had two burritos with him or something, and no way to contact anyone for help. No, the first few days of being stuck, he tried to dislodge his arm any way he could while going through what little supplies he did have, but to no avail. But by the fifth day, it was clear to him that if he had any chance of survival, he would have to take some drastic action. And so with the resolve to live, and a cheap, you know, Swiss Army knife multi-tool thing in hand, he ended up amputating his arm over the next hour. He broke his arm and then cut the rest of it off. Now, this is an incredible and grisly story of survival, and had he not resolved to such a drastic action, to to amputation, had he decided to take a less drastic action and avoid the sacrifice that he ultimately had to make, well, he probably would have died. Survival, in this case, required him to recognize that there was only one way forward and to resolve himself that at the end of the day, there was only one course of action left to take. And friends, this is a resolve when we come to our text with even greater at stake, when we hear the resolve that Jeremiah would have us cultivate in our own discipleship. Now, up until this point in Lamentations, Jeremiah, he's orbited around this issue, this big issue of Jerusalem's destruction and the temple's devastation, all of which would happen in 586 BC. And he reflected how everything that came to pass in that terrible day, those terrible hours, uh, was the result of how the Lord had decided to judge his people for their sins. He, was, he, he reflected at length so far in Lamentations on also what exactly happened when Babylon and Edom did what they did on bringing this judgment and shame upon God's people. And then throughout the various laments, we've heard the anguished voice of the prophet weeping as he contemplates all of these horrifying realities. But as we reach the end of the book in this final lament in Lamentations 5, there's no more talk anymore just about God and no more simply crying out into the abyss about Jerusalem's shame. Because this final lament in its entirety talks to God. This final lament in its entirety is a prayer. Now, you may remember that throughout the book of Lamentations, we've heard little prayers break through at various points every so often. But so far, those prayers, when we've heard them, have been quite short, just one piece in the puzzle that is Lamentations. But now, When we reach the end, Jeremiah wants the people of God to know that if there would be any restitution for them, a restoration, any way forward, they would have to resolve themselves to the fact that God and God alone must be the one to bring it about. You know, something I mentioned way back when we started Lamentations, and you'd be forgiven if you've forgotten by now, is that every chapter that makes up the book is structured as an alphabetic acrostic, 
Now, we can't quite see this in our English translations, can't see it at all in our English translations, but in the Hebrew text, each verse follows the Hebrew alphabet. So the first verse begins with a word that starts with aleph, the next verse begins with a word that starts with bait, and so on and so forth, through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You know what an acrostic is, where you have a letter and then you have something that's said about them? So, you know, Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W, Andrew, A stands for awesome, things like that. Uh, That's an alphabetic acrostic, and you get something like that with Lamentations. And this device does a few different things for us in Lamentations. For one thing, it reminds the reader that for all of the devastation and destruction and chaos and weeping that follows that we read through all of these various laments, that there's still a divine ordering to all of it, everything that's unfolding in Israel's life. It's not just chaos, at least not from God's perspective. And for another thing, this structure, this alphabetic acrostic also functions to slow down the reader so that he or she would reflect a little bit more intentionally on all the details and all the reasons for those details that we find in Lamentations. But when we come to the final lament, Lamentations 5, what's interesting and unique about this lament is Jeremiah now completely abandons this alphabetic acrostic. Again, you can't see this in the English, but but while there are still 22 verses and 22 letters on the Hebrew alphabet, this lament no longer follows the neat order that we find in all of the other laments. So why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, it seems that after spending four chapters reflecting at length on these matters in a neat and tidy way, there's only thing one, left, one thing left to do, and that's to lay it all at the feet of the only one who can bring restoration. It's as if everything that has been or that could be said has been said, and the only thing left to do is bring it all to the Lord because it's only He who can fix things. You know, kind of like my son bringing me all of his Lego pieces that he's tried to put together on his own but can't and laying it all before me and saying, Dad, just fix it, just do it, just take care of it. Well, Jeremiah here, he invites Israel to bring everything one last time before the Lord without caring so much if it's all neat and tidy and organized, and instead recognizing that at the end of the day, it's only He who can fix things. But beyond Israel's situation in 586 BC, this lament reminds us that in all of our suffering, in all of our confusion, and all of our crying out, why, O Lord, why are things the way that they are, in all of our grief, well, we too are called to come to the resolution to resolve ourselves that there is only one who can restore. Like Israel, we need to come to the end of ourselves and recognize that restoration and life is in the hands of the Lord and in His hands alone. So our big idea as we prepare to study the text before us is this, be resolved in the one who restores, be resolved in the one who restores. And the question then is how do we do that? How do we do that? And our outline is as follows. First, be resolved in our fellowship. Second, be resolved in our repentance. And third, be resolved in our future. Resolved in our fellowship, resolved in our repentance, and resolved in our future. So let's begin resolved in our fellowship. Now again, this opening verse, verse one of Lamentations 5, it kind of sets the tone for the entirety of the rest of the chapter. Because for one thing, as I mentioned just a moment ago, it frames the entirety of Lamentations 5 as a prayer. From the very first verse, Jeremiah appeals to the Lord. That's the way the passage opens. That's the way the passage closes as well, with an appeal to the Lord, and it means that everything in between is meant to be understood as a prayer as well. 
But this opening appeal, though it sounds somewhat similar to those other prayers that have maybe peaked or showed themselves throughout the earlier laments, this prayer is slightly different from those other prayers for at least two reasons. First, is that the language we find in verse 1 is some of the strongest prayer language in the book of Lamentations. Notice that within one verse, in verse 1 here, Jeremiah stacks together three appeals. He asks the Lord to remember, to look, and to see. In fact, the prayer here is so insistent and so strong that one commentator even goes so far as to claim that these three commands, quote, combine to make Lamentations 5.1 perhaps the most insistent prayer found in the Old Testament. Strong words. What we read here and what follows in the rest of Lamentations 5 then, this isn't a timid prayer. This isn't a shy prayer. This is a prayer of the resolved prophet who recognizes from the beginning that if anything is going to change for Israel in their future, it has to come at the hands of the Lord and Him alone. But the second noteworthy feature about this verse is that this isn't the prophet's prayer alone, because notice, it's a corporate prayer. These aren't just first-person singulars, these are first-person plurals. You see, Jeremiah isn't making these appeals just for himself. Instead, he's inviting the assembly of God's people to join him in these appeals and together as a fellowship pray this prayer in unison. Whatever is left of the fellowship that's been ravaged by Babylon's invasion are now urged to come together and appeal to the Lord to remember and to look and to see. Now, these three appeals are essentially asking God to remember His promises and to remember that those who are suffering such shame and disgrace, details of which I'm going to cover in just a second once again, that these are His people. They're not strangers. The Lord's never been detached from this people in their history. He promised that He wouldn't be detached from them in their future either. And if anything is going to change, if the people of God could be restored, it would require the Lord to do it. Now, this determined appeal, it's going to expand and continue in the verses that follow, but I want to pause on this for a moment and recognize that it's really important. This is really important, or at least noteworthy, that in the wake of Jerusalem's utter devastation, where so much went wrong in the lead up to it, there was so much sin that was entertained on the part of Israel, that Jeremiah encourages God's people here to come together and as a united people stand united in their confession and in their resolve that only the Lord can move them forward. In other words, I think it's significant that this final resolute plea in the final chapter of Lamentations is a corporate prayer. Now, let me explain it like this. So, earlier, earlier this week, earlier this week in the Leitner household, um, we had one of those trash cans, you know, those trash cans with the foot pedals and that foot pedal break, broke, it, 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 it snapped off. I walked into the kitchen to throw away something, I pressed down on the pedal, and nothing happened. And so I looked at the lid, and it looked like something had snapped, something had broken. But rather than trying to fix the problem right away, that would have been the smart thing to do, my first move was to investigate. And so I summoned each child over to the crime scene, and I asked, do you know what happened? Did you happen to press the foot pedal too hard this afternoon, maybe? Was there anything, any kind of foul play that was involved by the trash can? You see, there was a part of me that was more interested, rather than fixing the thing, in probing if there was someone to blame, someone not named Andrew, of course, to blame for this tragedy. Now, thankfully, my wise wife came over shortly after with a screwdriver, adjusted it, and all was well. 
Um, but I wonder if this illustrates our approach, especially in the church or among the people of God, when things in our lives go awry. You see, if Israel in their corporate life, if they only played the blame game for what happened in 586 BC and why it happened, there would be plenty of blame to go around. And in fact, we've heard throughout Lamentations, Israel do just that. Israel's played the blame game often, not in a petty way to deflect from their own culpability, as we so often do, but precisely as a means to coming to terms with their own culpability. Jeremiah in earlier chapters already pointed out how inside the nation, the prophets, they spoke lies, the priests gave lip service to their duty, and the kings were just plain wicked. There was plenty of blame to go around to nearly every single group in the nation, and throughout Lamentations, including in this passage too, Israel recognizes their sin, and they confess their sin. But as we reach the end of this book, I think it's interesting that there's no more blame assigned to the various groups within Israel, even when there was plenty of blame to go around. Because at the end of the day, friends, we can't move forward as a people if all we do is think the problem is exclusively with everyone else but not with you. So from the very beginning of this lament, Jeremiah prompts the people of God to join their voices together as one people, as a people who are united in their guilt, united in their sin, united in their confession. We'll hear a little bit about that in a minute, but also united in their resolve that the only way forward is to lean upon the Lord to bring relief and restoration. And friends, that same lesson applies to us as well. You see, one thing the Bible consistently tells us to do as a church, as a people, is to pursue unity even in suffering. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then in Romans 12, 5, he commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.3 calls his readers to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated as well, since you also are in the body. Understand that suffering, whatever its form and whether, whether or not it's deserved like it was for Israel or not, it can often stir up within us a bitter, self-righteous desire to find someone, anyone else, to blame and often it's those who are closest to us who can bear the brunt of our frustrations or accusations, rightly or wrongly. But what Jeremiah models here is the essence of unity among a suffering people. You see, rather than each group blaming the other, and again, there was plenty of sin, plenty of blame to go around, he shows us at the end of the day what it looks like when a body humbly recognizes that, yes, other people in the body are sinners who may do unwise things, but even when they bear responsibility, they aren't our mortal enemies. Instead, Jeremiah encourages us to come together as sinners, knowing that each of us have our own issues, each of us have the same need, though, too, and each of us have the same hope in Jesus Christ. And so, rather than looking immediately for where all the blame lies, Jeremiah encourages us as we come to this final lament, this final plea, this final result, resolution that only the Lord can be, bring restoration, that we need to draw together as one and recognize as one that there's only one, namely the Lord, who can make us whole. So in verse 1, he calls us then to be resolved in fellowship and unity, but as we continue in our text, he also calls us as a body to be resolved both corporately and individually 
in our repentance as well. This is the second point, second resolve in our repentance. Now, moving on from verse 1, the bulk of this final lament, what we find here, actually recalls several of the details, details that we've grown accustomed to hearing as we've gone through the book of Lamentations, details that recall and reflect upon the aftermath of what happened in 586 B.C. In nearly every lament, Jeremiah has gone over the effects of Babylon's invasion and how Israel fared in the lead-up to that invasion and the aftermath of that invasion. And in this respect, this final prayer that we encounter isn't much different than what we've already heard in Lamentations. Uh, We hear those details recalled here with much more brevity. The tone is much more resigned and matter-of-fact than maybe in previous laments and lamentations. But the same horrible details about what happened in 586 B.C., well, they're still repeated, and they're still recalled by the prophet. So what are some of those details? Well, first, Jeremiah reflects on the economic ramifications that Israel now suffers in the wake of their devastation, all of which stem from the current state of the land. You see, Israel's land, the place where they dwelt, that was their inheritance. That's what Jeremiah means when he says, we have become, or or, sorry, in verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. It's a reference to the land, the land of promise. It was the Lord who allocated this land to His people, and it was in the context of the land where the people of God were supposed to flourish in relationship with Him. It was in the context of the land where families would raise their kids where they would live in fellowship with other families, where they would harvest for food, and where they would ultimately rest in the Lord and in His promises. But what about now? Well, now their inheritance has been turned over to strangers and foreigners, and they've become themselves strangers and foreigners in their own land. They now have to purchase water and wood from their occupiers, It's no longer a safe place. We hear how it's dangerous to venture outside the city walls. And then we hear that families were ripped apart as children became orphans and mothers, widows. The the land in the aftermath of Babylon's invasion was no longer a place for families to flourish because families no longer had their fathers and husbands to protect and disciple. And in that comment in verse 3, there may even be this implicit question the people of God are asking, do we still have in the aftermath of this invasion a heavenly father? Or are we now, as the church, the church of the Old Testament, are we now orphaned and without hope and without God in the world? Maybe that's a question we ask ourselves sometimes too. Well, Jeremiah then moves from all these details that orbit around Jerusalem's economic disaster and collapse And then he talks about the unraveling of the nation's social fabric in verses 11 through 14. This is too often the case in the the history of warfare. We hear that the invading Babylonian army took advantage of the women of Israel in particular in the most despicable of ways. We also hear that those of royal blood, the princes, were hung up by their hands. It's probably a reference there to being put in the stocks to be shamed. And then we hear that the future of Israel, the young men, are treated like animals who are compelled to work and grind grain at the mill. Then the city gates, the places where legislative and judicial affairs would have been decided by the nation, well, what happens there? Well, they're silent. The wisest in Israel are no longer there deciding these places and instead, or deciding these matters, and instead it's become like an old west mining town that's been abandoned. Now, it's somewhat telling, I think, that even as the structures that held this nation together had collapsed and the social fabric had been ripped apart in the aftermath of Babylon's invasion, remember 
that this entire reflection on all of these particular details, it still takes the form of a corporate prayer. You see, Babylon, they may have done everything they could to drive a wedge in the unity of God's people, and they succeeded, of course, in devastating families and Israel's entire national structure. But Jeremiah still summons what's left of the nation, defeated though they may be, to come together and as one people, together, bring their pleas before God. You see, they may be devastated, but even as the city lies in ruin, they have not ceased to be a people, and their devastation, as complete as it was, didn't lead to their extinction. And in that way, there's still a glimmer of hope in what otherwise would be a pile of ruins. Nevertheless, as we move into verses 15 through 18, what's left of the assembly confesses that these economic and social ramifications that we've read from verse 2 to verse 14 still had quite the effect on them as they reflect on them. They may have emerged with their lives intact, at least for the time, but their joy, we hear, has ceased. Their, Their dancing has turned into mourning. They grieve the devastating reality that their royal status, their crown, well, that's gone. And as a result, their eyes are faint, their eyes are filled with tears, and they can't see straight any longer as their eyes well up with so much crying. Now, earlier we pointed out that that, that many of the details in this final lament, at least in comparison to all of the other laments that we've read so far, they're much more matter-of-fact in this passage, much more straightforward, much more just to the point than we read in previous passages. And yet, even still, these facts about Jerusalem's devastation can never be divorced entirely from sorrow. And we see that here in verses 15 through 18. And yet, while Jeremiah surveys Israel's horrible devastation one final time, and we hear how sorrow kind of pokes through all of it, there's still clarity on Israel's part about why these things happened and why she's in the place that she's in. And at the end of the day, it all boils down to Israel's sin. In verse 7, we hear a pointed recognition that our fathers have sinned, and then in verse 16, they also confess, woe to us, for we have sinned. You see, there's a resolved recognition that from one generation to the next, our fathers have sinned, we have sinned, and we're now reaping the horrible but righteous consequences for our sin. Wages of sin is death, Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us, and that's very much true in a spiritual sense ultimately, but it's also true in this case in a very physical sense too. Now, it's hard, I think, to overstate just how remarkable this confession of sin in both verse 7 and verse 16 really is, especially when we take into consideration those confessions in light of all of the devastating details that we just read, and also in light of other possible responses that Israel might have had in light of recalling all of those details once again. Let me explain like this. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a scene that comes to mind right now, and it's a scene from a movie, a film that came out a few years ago, a, a, a film that really focuses on, um, on Winston Churchill. He was the, the prime minister of um, the, the UK during World War II. Now, for context, this this film that I have in mind, it centers on all of the critical decisions that um, Churchill had to make within just a few days after he became prime minister. There were a lot of decisions that he had to make. And at the center of it was this critical decision 
about do we, as, as the UK, enter into negotiations with Hitler in order to procure peace, or do we continue to wage an all-out war with the hope of eventually emerging victorious? And, and there's this one scene where after days of intense pressure and pushback, even among his own war cabinet and anguish around this question, should we pursue peace with Hitler or should we continue waging this all-out war? Churchill's crafting this speech with his typist, and, and, and he's sort of stumbling through what to say in his speech. You can tell he's anguished, he, he's disturbed by everything that's going on. And while his typist is recording what he's dictating to her, we hear an anguished and uncertain Churchill say this. He says this, he says, I've begun to wonder in recent days whether it was part of my duty to enter into negotiations with, and he can't say the name Hitler. Now, it's clear that's who he has in mind, but instead he starts mumbling under his breath things like that corporal, that child, that monster of wickedness, that savage. And as he continues mumbling under his breath all these descriptions, we see his anger and his frustrations build as he thinks about who this is and the devastation that's come all across Europe, that's swept across Europe because of this man, until finally he throws down this newspaper he's holding in fury. You see, in this scene, the more Churchill apparently turns over in his head everything this guy stands for, everything Europe is suffering at his hands, he's furious, and understandably so. Now, when Jeremiah, back to our text, invites God's people to reflect themselves on the savagery inflicted upon them by Babylon without even naming Babylon, we might expect lament to move kind of in that direction, where they start getting furious and anger over everything that Babylon has done, over all of Babylon's atrocities, and we might let Jeremiah off the hook if that's exactly what he did in this lament. Anger at such terrible violence and injustice would be an understandable response. But instead we hear a sober Israel and a sober Jeremiah recognize that at the end of the day, they only have themselves to blame. Now to be sure, Israel had been victimized, and in Babylon's invasion, Israel is both the sinners and the sinned against. But in their resolve to move forward, they don't leverage their victimhood in that way. Instead, they resolve themselves to repentance. So what about you? Now, to be clear, I tried to emphasize this point many, many times in our study of Lamentations. It's too often the case, or it's often the case, that we can't, nor should we try to draw a direct line from our suffering to some specific sin in our lives. Our suffering is always the result of the fall, but it's not always the direct result of something we did or didn't do, so let's be clear about that. But at the same time, it's always worth asking ourselves whether our tendency in conflict, or in suffering, or in grief is always to play the victim and to get so worked up at the sins of other people or even the supposed injustice of God that we fail to see and repent of our own sin or even just grieve the sin of the world. So again, what about you? Is it your tendency to point the finger always at other people or even at God when suffering or injustices surface and all the while never bothering to consider the ways that we perhaps should point the finger from time to time at ourselves? Is it your tendency to be so upset at the injustices inflicted upon you by other people, even if they're petty or minor injustices, while rarely coming to terms with the injustices you inflict on other people, or more than that, your high treason against the King of Kings? 
Understand, friends, that in our discipleship, we will be dealt with all kinds of injustices. We will always be the sinners and the sinned against, and there will be plenty of suffering and blame to go around. But if we never bother to recognize our own issues in that process, if it's always someone else's fault, well, then we'll never know the unity that Jeremiah drives the church towards in this corporate prayer of confession, and neither will we learn how to rest in the one who ultimately restores. But the good news of our passage and the good news of the gospel is that even with these grave injustices inflicted upon Israel and Israel's confession now laid bare on the table, the one who judged his people in 586 BC at the hands of Babylon also promises that in the future there will be restoration. And that's a word not just for Israel in 586 BC, but friends, that is a word for us too. And so this leads to our final point, third, be resolved in the future. And here we're really looking at these final four verses, verses 19 through 22. But in these final four verses, when we review them real quick, we find immediately that there's something of a tension here. Because on the one hand, there's hope, there's optimism, that surfaces, that pokes its way through in these final verses. In verse 19, we're reminded of of the great truth that the Lord reigns forever and that His throne endures to all generations. Everything that the throne of the Lord stands for, think about that, from His sovereignty to His faithfulness to His steadfast love and everything in between, all of these truths endure from generation to generation. You may remember back in verse 7, we heard this confession that our fathers sinned and were no more. And if we focused on that passage in isolation, we might conclude, well, if generation after generation, if all they knew was sin and all they did was prove to be a faithless sort of people, would God then give up on His people for good? And yet by the end of this lament, we're reminded of the good news that God never ceases to rule according to His eternal generational promises, even when His people generation after generation prove themselves to be somewhat of a miserable lot. We also hear optimism in verse 21, where Jeremiah and through him the people of God, they don't give up on asking big things of God. They ask that the Lord would restore them. You see, They haven't resigned themselves, even after recalling all of those terrible details. They haven't resigned themselves to fatalism or cynicism. Even after going through everything they've gone through, they haven't stopped talking to God. And they seem to recognize, even still, that if restoration would happen, it's in the hands of the Lord. So on the one hand, we hear in these final verses optimism and hope that surfaces as lamentation closes. And yet there's also a good deal of uncertainty and weariness in these closing verses too. You know, one commentator correctly points out that Lamentations has no Hollywood ending. And if we wanted it to, we'd probably move Lamentations 3 at the end of the book and not leave chapter 5 there. And in fact, the way that the book ends in verse 22 has troubled Jewish readers so much so over the years that apparently in synagogues to this day and even certain printed versions of the Hebrew text, they swap verse 21 and 22 so that it ends on a more hopeful note. But at the end of the day, there's no getting around the fact that the book ends not on a note of God's compassion and mercy, rich though it is, true though it is, but on a note of God's anger. And in that way, the book of Lamentations ends on more of a tentative note than we might be comfortable with. 
Yes, God's people pray that God would restore them. Yes, they acknowledge the unchangeable nature of His rule and promises, but they have no idea as the book closes, especially in their tears. They can't see clearly how to, recognize, how to reconcile their unholiness with God's infinite holiness, or how God's affirmation elsewhere in the Scriptures that His people are the apple of His eye, how that in, in any sense could comport with their current decrepit state. And so, Lamentation ends resolved that God is going to reign forever, but it also fears His utter rejection, and it doesn't completely reconcile this tension. And I would imagine that in our sin and in our suffering, well, maybe we feel this tension too. You know, we believe, but how often are we asking the Lord to help us in our unbelief? And yet, the good news of God's is that God's Word and the story of God's relationship with His people doesn't end with the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is not the final book in the Bible because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this tension, well, it finds its great resolution. You know, several times in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as the propitiation for sins, the propitiation for sins. In Romans 3, 23 through 25, the apostle Paul tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, to say that Christ is our propitiation, that's a big word. Probably don't use that word every day. That's a word that refers to to Jesus Christ's wrath-bearing work on our behalf. In other words, through Christ's death, the Bible tells us, Christ satisfied the righteous wrath of God that was directed against us, His people. And when we receive Christ by faith, we also receive the assurance that though God disciplines us for our good and our discipleship, that His anger for us has already been poured out and satisfied in Christ Jesus, who has satisfied the demands placed upon us in the law and bore the curse that we have incurred for our law-breaking. You see, at the end of the day, this tension that closes out lamentations, a tension that even many modern-day Jews apparently struggle to reconcile, is a tension that's resolved perfectly in the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, we can even be more resolved about the outcome of our future than faithful Israel could in exile because we see fulfilled what they could only see in types and shadows. We see by faith the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. And so the only question then that's left for us is have you found Jesus to be your only comfort in life and death? Have you resolved to rest upon Him come what may? See, the ultimate future, the ultimate hope rather for our future doesn't lie in our circumstances changing on this earth but in whether or not the Lord is with us in whatever circumstances we face. In the final verses here in Lamentations, God's people, I think it's important to note, aren't asking primarily that the Lord would restore all of the blessings they enjoyed in the land. Rather, they're asking primarily that He would restore them to Himself. 
Commentator John McKay writes this. He says, while it is possible to contemplate other losses occurring and, still, and life still continuing, the prospect of life without God at its center cannot be endured. Friends, at the end of the day, their primary concern is that the Lord would restore them to Him because otherwise anything else that might go well for them in the future is in vain, and the same is true for us too. You see, any talk about our future is ultimately in vain unless Christ is at the center of our future. And so, as you think about your future, have you resolved to put Christ at the center of it? Is Christ at the center of your lives right now? You know, to follow Christ in our lives as disciples may mean that we have to give up certain things in order to move Christ further to the center. We might have to give up certain things in order that we might ultimately live. Like Aaron Ralston, we might have to give up something as precious to us as our arm in order to truly live. Not really, but you get the point. And for some of you, it might mean stop wavering between two different opinions and be resolved instead to rest in the one who cuts off not our arms so that we can live, but who cuts out our heart of stone and gives us hearts of flesh so that we can live. Friends, understand that the only way the story of Lamentations and the story of the Bible and also our own stories end well is if Christ lies at the heart of it and Christ is the end of it. So whether you're still evaluating the claims of Christianity or you are a Christian, but maybe sitting on the fence right now in your discipleship, friends, the exhortation here is to resolve yourself to rest, come whatever may, in the only one who can restore. As we prepare to close out our sermon then, our study in Lamentations, and also come to the, to the table of the Lord where we're reminded of, of, of these same gospel truths, let me leave us with this closing exhortation. As you resolve yourself to rest in the one who restores, invest yourself in future generations too. You know, we hear in this final lament a concern, and it's a concern not just narrowly for the generation that was suffering in the wake of Babylon's invasion, but it's a recognition of past generations of Israelites who have failed, an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness to each generation of His people, and even an implicit concern for future generations too. This is a lament that, yes, it derives from a very specific time and place in Israel's history, but its concerns stretch far beyond that time and place. Its concerns are caught up in the generations of God's people. And so as we think about our own personal resolve this morning, our own resolve to cultivate unity in our body, our own resolve to live lives where confession lies at the heart of our discipleship and body life, friends, don't forget to look beyond yourself and resolve yourself in future generations. Resolve that your house will serve the Lord and that future generations, insofar it depends upon you, will hear the hope, the great hope that we have for restoration in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these promises that even in lament, even in our grief, even when we can't see things clearly because of our tears, that you see us, that we are still the apple of your eye, that your promises that have made, been made towards us will, will for sure come to pass. Father, help us rest in all of these things in our laments. Help us to cultivate greater unity as we think about what does it mean to pursue unity and suffering. Help us to 
realize our own sin, to point the finger at ourselves from time to time, but at the end of the day, to recognize that you are the only one who can make us whole. You are the only one who can bring joy. You are the only one who can restore. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.